In today's episode, I speak with Eamon Herity of the Sky Islands Alliance. We chat about the border wall that Governor Ducey is building on the Arizona-Mexico border by the Huachuca Mountains. It's a good conversation. I learned quite a bit about how a physical barrier can disrupt animal migration and cause problems in the future. I hope you enjoy the episode. Like, share, subscribe. All right, Ammon, so what's up with this border wall? Um, I saw that on your guys' Instagram account that governor or the governor um, started constructing a border wall with shipping containers. So what's kind of going on with that? Yeah, so Governor Ducey in the state of Arizona in the latter half of October began staging and bringing shipping containers, unused old shipping containers to the National Forest, Coronado National Forest on the west side of the Huachuca Mountain. So for folks um, of the area, it's it's the Coronado National Memorial is a national park property that's just west of Sierra Vista. And that property is the kind of collects or holds the southern end of the Huachuca Mountains. And there's a really beautiful pass uh, you can go up called Montezuma Pass uh, that offers amazing views of, of that region. Um, and on the west side of those mountains, um, the state of Arizona is illegally placing shipping containers along the U.S.-Mexico border. Okay, and so just for context, uh, the Huachuca Mountains are like kind of where the Arizona Trail dead ends and or starts, I guess, depending on which direction you're going, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the Huachuca Mountains are are beautiful for a lot of reasons. They have designated jaguar habitat. It's one of a few places in, in Arizona where the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service designated habitat as, as potential for jaguars. There hasn't been a jaguar in the Huachucas for a number of years, but it's it's got all the right conditions to support jaguars. And, and, and there actually are known ocelots uh, in the Huachuca Mountains. So it's this really rich location. And the Arizona Trail, which is a, a, a long trail that starts at the U.S.-Mexico border right there in the Huachucas and winds its way all the way up to the border with Utah, um, kind of starts right at the that ridge line of the Huachuca Mountains. Cool. That's actually kind of my my intro to like the Sky Islands area and everything is years ago, I got yeah. kind of obsessed with the Arizona Trail and I went down there and I was really blown away by like how mountainous that area is. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, these, the Sky Islands are, are relatively large mountains for the area. They pop right out of the Sonoran Desert um, and, and, and go from you know, a creosote, acacia-dominated landscape with scattered grasslands all the way up to a pine forest. Um, and just actually in October, early November, first week of November, they were covered in snow. Um, so these mountains, you think of southern Arizona, you think of hot, you think of desert, you think of dry. Um, but these mountains are different. They they catch that moisture and they collect snow and, and, and quite a bit of rain. So it's a beautiful spot. In fact, we were just down there... Uh, uh, two weeks ago, and as we were on the pass, um, two younger gentlemen came down the trail, and they were on their final two miles or final three miles of the Arizona Trail, having started in Utah um, or at the border of Utah 40 days prior. So that was kind of cool. That's super cool. A couple of my friends from, um, they actually live in northern Utah, and they they attempted the Arizona Trail like this fall. 
And it was pretty wild to see how like their okay. idea of Arizona, Arizona changed so much because they were expecting just like hot, dry, humid, kind of like what everybody thinks about Arizona as. And they got here and they're just like, holy cow, like yeah. we're up in the mountains. And it's like legit mountains. <laughs> and this is pretty cool. So back when Trump was in office, he ran on the whole platform of building the border wall. It's obviously it's not going to happen. Didn't happen, I should say. Um, so why are why are shipping containers being brought down to the border to the forest and why? Yeah, that, that so that's a great question. And the 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 presence of a physical barrier on the U.S. Mexico border is an issue and a topic that predates predates Trump. It predates Obama, Clinton. It goes it goes back a long ways. There's the border has been this fascinating evolution from sort of just an imaginary line um, across the landscape to scattered border markers uh, to barbed wire fencing primarily to keep cattle in places uh, and then out over the past probably 40 years it's it's got increasingly more dramatic um, to the point where you might even say it's, it's more of like a militarized border zone and Trump in office had the initiative of completing the border wall uh, from the coast of California through Texas uh, in Arizona, I think about 60%, a little more than 60% of the Arizona border has wall. Not all of that was complete, was built during Trump's uh, um, time in office. Some of that predates Trump and was built during the, the Bush and the Obama administrations. Um, but critically, this portion of wall or border between the Patagonia Mountains, which are, are kind of, they start near Nogales, uh, Arizona, Nogales, Mexico, and the Huachuca Mountains in Arizona uh, near Sierra Vista, that was left unwalled. Um, it has a barbed wire fence throughout the whole region, and it has a what's known as a vehicle barrier or a bunch of steel uh, railroad ties kind of welded together in X's. Uh, another name for that is a Norman defense to prevent vehicles from freely moving across the border. Uh, and so that infrastructure has been present on this landscape, but no other infrastructure is there until these shipping containers have arrived. Right, like I said, around the second week of October, they started showing up. Um, and now they extend three and a half miles. They're stacked too high and they start on, like I mentioned, on the western slopes of the Huachucas and they're marching westward towards the San Rafael Valley which for folks in Tucson is relevant because that's the headwaters of the Santa Cruz River. The Santa Cruz River is born in this beautiful desert grasslands of the San Rafael Valley. And it wraps around, it dips southern, southwards into Mexico and then turns around. It's one of the few rivers that does this. Turns around and comes back north through that um, sort of green valley uh, corridor uh, up 19, it parallels 19 and then comes up into the Tucson area. So the shipping containers are heading that way, um, bringing with them a ton of destruction because they have to bulldoze oaks and widen roads and flatten washes. Um, and they're doing all of it without authorization. So it's pretty hard to watch, um, mostly because of that destruction, but also looking at the shipping containers, folks may have seen photos. It's pretty clear that it will not be very effective at at impeding movement of people. Um, so that kind of adds insult to injury in my mind that 
they're doing all this work, they're doing all this construction, destruction as well. And then they're spending nearly a hundred million dollars to do something that's not going to work. Um, so that puts a couple of questions in my head then. Like one, why is shipping containers like I understand it's kind of just like a, a put together metal cage essential or box, if you want to call it that, for whatever, and it's pretty simple, but it's like it's not necessarily like a, a real barrier as far as like I don't know stopping flow of, of humans, anyways. And then, right? Yeah. So, do you want to kind of do you know anything more about that? Well, my understanding is shipping containers are easy to come by. I think from just a global economics perspective, more shipping containers come to the U.S. from from in exporters, right? Like the countries like China and India that are producing a ton of things and exporting goods to the U.S. We get more shipping containers than we send out. So there's sort of a surplus of shipping containers in the U.S. Again, I don't, I'm not a global economics um, expert by any means. Uh, that's just what I've understood. And thus they're sort of cheap and easy to come by. They're easy to move in a, a you know, a large pickup truck and a trailer. Um, and they are pretty quick to install, right? You just have to bare minimum take a, an excavator and grade a flat area and drop the container down and you've instantly made, I need to look this up, maybe the 56 feet, I can't remember um, how long a shipping container is, but it, it, you make progress quickly and it's really easy to place them. Um, and you know, they're designed to stack on top of each other and there's all of this equipment already in place. So it, it makes it so a, a, a wall in quotations can be erected quickly um, at, at a relatively cheaper cost than say the, the pedestrian barrier with steel bollards that was built um, by previous administrations. Yeah, it, I, I guess I get like the cost perspective side, but it seems like an interesting um, an interesting use of a shipping container because like you see people now is like building homes out of shipping containers and like whatever. And I grew up in a small town and people have them for storage for vehicles and things, but like building a wall out of shipping containers seems a little unprecedented in my opinion. Well, unfortunately, it's not unprecedented. Um, a shipping container wall was built by again by Ducey without authorization in the Yuma area, uh, and again most folks see this as a political stunt it's political theater to to sort of have a, a campaign platform much like the the wall that trump built was considered the most expensive campaign political campaign stunt in history um this shipping container is sort of ducey's version or governor ducey's version of that here in arizona he's can say hey i've i'm building the wall i'm protecting arizonans when many folks, if you sit down and talk, particularly those from both sides of the political spectrum here in Southern Arizona, recognize that it's not necessarily useful or effective and also not necessarily needed. I mean, this is an incredibly remote area. Yes, some folks do cross through these lands, but it's not the hordes and waves of people described by sort of national news um so yeah i can stop there <laughs> let's talk a little bit more about about that then as far as like numbers go because you look at the cbp numbers and 
like immigration is definitely ramped up, but their numbers are just like all across the southern border and not necessarily like just Arizona or the Huachucas or something. Um, no. And then related to that too, like I've, a New Yorker magazine put out a short documentary earlier this year where they kind of talk about that as well. Yeah. But it, it was more like emotion-based versus stats. Like there's almost zero statistics in um, in their documentary. So mm-hmm. do you have any numbers, I guess, of like people coming through that area? Because like I've, I've ridden my bike down there quite a bit and it's like you see a ton of border patrol, but like I've never seen any immigrants myself or really right. going on but like i hear things so i'm like what's actually true and what do the numbers uh represent or reflect yeah and that's tricky and there's i think it's a little bit intentional but the cb center for or yeah center for border protection cbp and uh dhs department of homeland security are are vague and opaque in their numbers they present a global statistic that represents all immigrants detained along the u.s mexico border uh, without providing specifics is the number that were detained sort of in remote areas like the Patagonia's mountains versus those that were just like actually requesting asylum at main ports of entry. And so anecdotally, I've been told that the vast majority of those numbers are people crossing at main ports of entry and willingly seeking asylum. They recognize that because of the systems in place in the U.S., the easiest, like the most expeditious way to get asylum, the safest way is actually to cross at a port of entry and then turn themselves in essentially. Um, so they'll either try to get across um, the wall close to a port of entry and then just wait for border patrol or they'll just present at a port of entry and ask for asylum. Um, and the numbers of folks detained in these remote areas like the Wachucas and the Wachuca Mountains and the Patagonia Mountains, the San Rafael Valley, are just a fraction, a small percentage point, if if even a whole percentage point of that statistics that that is always presented um, to us as a as a society, as a culture. You know, we're presented with these scary sounding numbers of millions of folks detained at the southern border, when in fact the vast majority of those are just folks requesting asylum or willingly seeking um, who would otherwise take a legal means of immigration if that was feasible and safe for them to do so. I don't think many people would brave the types of challenges. Uh, I don't, and it's another thing I don't think that is conceptualized. You've been down there, you've biked this area, it's remote. Um, and so these people coming across have either traveled from another city of Mexico, or they've traveled from another country um, in Central America or even in South America. So they've already endured turmoil and, 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 and challenges for, for, for weeks, months, days. And then they get to the US border and it's in this incredibly remote area and they have to hike across mountain ranges. They have to scale like two ridgelines through the Huachucas. At night, many of them do this. Um, and so I don't like people wouldn't choose to do that unless they really felt compelled, pushed by something from their homelands or pulled by something like the opportunity to be with family, the opportunity for economic improvement. Um, And I think most of them would choose a legal way if our immigration system was, was sane. We'll say that. Yeah, it definitely seems like, um, there needs to be some immigration reform with like the amount of immigrants trying to get to the States and everything right. on both like 
both political sides of the aisle, I guess there's always issues and it's, I, I think it just shows like how, how amazing the United States can be uh, versus some other places. Like if people want to get here and they're willing to, to risk their lives for it. Really? Yeah. They, they risk a tremendous amount. In fact, we were just in Sonora, Mexico, checking some of our wildlife cameras just earlier this week. Um, and we found a torn up Ecuadorian passport. Um, and that was just really emotional and powerful to we were at a perennial spring so it's a source of fresh water um which is pretty scarce on the landscape this time of year and so there was some sign that people had moved through and there was a, a torn up ecuadorian passport and who knows what the story of that individual was but they, they had traveled a long way and and were just a few kilometers from the u.s mexico border um, when that passport was destroyed so that was a pretty powerful imagery and and food for thought right to to think of the journey that person took just for the opportunity to enter the country um and again like you mentioned it reinforces the need just to have a conversation about the immigration policies um at a national level yeah definitely it's a it's a good conversation to have and like actually have a real conversation about it versus one side calling one side racist or whatever like it doesn't really solve any yeah. issues and it's it's such a complex thing going on that like we need to just discuss it and i think that's really important and but also just speaking about like um, your wildlife cameras like you guys have them set up all over the place so like it, i think it's fairly clear that like border walls don't necessarily do much especially in these like wide expanses like i don't have any data off the top of my head but it's like okay like the border is how many thousands of miles long people are going to get through in one way or another but with animals and the native species, it's quite a bit different. And mm-hmm. like like you mentioned earlier, there's a like it's a natural uh, jaguar habitat, which a lot of people don't even realize that big cats are down in this area. Right. So can you talk a little bit more about how like the shipping containers and border walls in general are affecting the native species there and uh, on the southern border? Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. And that's part of this narrative, and an important part of this narrative is there's now a near continuous barrier across much of Arizona, um, more than 60% of Arizona in in an area that has been a natural corridor of animals moving north to south across a continent, uh, no, without political boundaries for for centuries, for eons, for tens of thousands of years, right? There's never been a physical barrier to movement and this has been an important migratory corridor for for animals either moving seasonally, or moving in search of resources like water and food and mating opportunities. And so the existing wall, the pedestrian wall, the the steel bollard wall absolutely blocks the movements of things like black bears, jaguars, mountain lions, deer, but both the mule deers and the white-tailed deers, um, larger javelinas, it it can slow down coyotes. um, And all of these animals are, are 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 important to the ecosystem and some things like the the north the american black bear extends its range into sonora but we're really at the very southern edge of its range right it's more common in the rocky mountains and in the the eastern sides of the united states the for, the forests of canada it's not it doesn't get much further south than here in in arizona in the sky islands but the populations in sonora some folks hypothesize that they're supported by individual black bears moving south out of sort of more congested habitat in southern Arizona 
into Sonora. And so there's fear among biologists and conservationists that with this wall being in place and impeding the southward movement of, of individual black bears, the population in Sonora is at risk of slowly petering out local extinctions. You just get fewer and fewer individuals in a location and that just makes them more vulnerable to events like a forest fire or more vulnerable to encroachment from development and things that reduce their habitat size. So that's that's one example of a species that is affected by the wall um, and the pedestrian wall. And what's the shipping containers are no better. They're currently, you know, they're opaque. They don't even have the four inch gaps like the pedestrian current, like the big steel pedestrian wall does. And so the the, the shipping containers, ironically, are more effective against wildlife, less effective against human is from our understanding and our sort of looking at the wall from afar, like a human can pretty easily scale this. It's it's not very tall um, and it's not very tight between the shipping containers. So you can probably find a way to sort of scamper up, but there's no space, not even for jackrabbits or cottontails, or we have four skunk species here in the Sky Islands, which are really, which is really unique. Um, things like porcupines, things like opossums. We have a, a Virginia opossum here, which many folks don't recognize or realize. Um, White-nosed coati, a very charismatic species here. And, and all of these species are in, affected by the shipping containers in ways that even the giant steel bollard wall does not affect. Um, I'm not trying to greenwash that wall. It's pretty terrible for all species in the region, but the shipping containers are particularly frustrating in that they impede the movement of even the smallest creature, but not necessarily the movement of the humans. Um, so, yeah. So watching you guys' wildlife cans and stuff, like just on your Instagram, um, I'm, I'm no expert necessarily on uh, wildlife migration, but do you guys have any like numbers? Because watching it, like obviously it's super sad to see like in like whatever a javelina pulls up to the wall and it's like, oh crap, I, I can't get through. But do you guys have any sort of like like data about that? Well, in specific numbers, we don't necessarily have specific numbers. We have a lot of examples of wildlife approaching the wall and turning around. Um, and the shipping containers are so new that we haven't had a chance to sort of document any drops or changes in numbers in our sort of existing network of cameras. But what we have seen is sort of just a re reduction in activity near those containers. We have some cameras that are facing the border and an area that didn't have a shipping container, didn't have shipping containers. Um, and we almost nightly see several pairs of coyotes. We'd see deer moving up north and south we'd see many species of skunk, like I mentioned, we'd see both species of jackrabbits. And since the shipping containers have been put down, it's it's almost been reduced to a few coyotes. They're, they're a very curious species. They're a very um, bold, they're all, bold might be a good word to use. They're, they, they're probably quicker to adjust to the change than some other animals. Um, but that's been the most dramatic change so far is just the reduction in activity at night uh, and part of that is it's just so brand new but also 
previous avenues for movement are just gone um, now with the shipping containers being placed. So animals are probably just shifting to places where their, their old paths of movement aren't blocked. So how do you think that'll affect then like just the ecology of the area? Um, because like obviously like, these animals have been kind of just moving through these areas for forever as far as I know, just generations and generations and yeah. generations. But and I think it's important to understand too for a lot of people who don't know the area that well. It's like you have a sky island and they're called that because they're kind of almost like these little islands in the desert where they're just like these diverse little areas and and it's like so moving through the desert is this I don't know, it, it's it's kind of like when humans move through the desert, like it's it's a hard thing to do, right? Right. Yeah, well, again, the shipping containers, our goal and our hope is that they won't last long. It's it's recognized by many individuals and in, in, in courts that it is an illegal action and the shipping containers are not permitted. They're not authorized. Um, and so we're hoping that there's a federal lawsuit that forces their removal. Um, regardless, it's a barrier. And if they aren't removed, again, it will take time and it'll be expensive. But if they aren't removed, they're just one more barrier. They're shrinking the gaps in this frontier or this borderlands even further. I mentioned before that as much as 60% of the Arizona-Mexico border are all is already walled um, with a wall that is largely impermeable to animals. Starting at the Huachucas, the Huachuca Mountains, if you go east, you can go almost to New Mexico, a distance of more than roughly 70 miles without a single gap in the wall. So if you're a white-tailed deer, if you are a mule deer, if you are a black bear or mountain lion looking for water, which is scarce on the landscape much of the year, looking for food, looking for a mating opportunity, looking for a place to call home, you can't cross south for almost 70 miles. Um, there are occasionally floodgates open during heavy rains and during the monsoon season, which offer some openings for animals to move. And so as a as a animal, the remaining opening areas are critically important because they facilitate the movement in search of resources. Really, it's water, which is a driving is a is a powerful tool here or a powerful resource here, right? It's it's seasonally very abundant during the monsoon rains, and then it's it's scarce through the the fall, and then it might rain again in the winter, where it which will refill the springs, refill some of these ponds, but it's scattered across the landscape and and as it's so central to life animals need the ability to get to where there might be standing ponds of water or a, a spring that's only seasonally available so barriers to movements are are harmful to the individual animal seeking those resources and at a longer time scale it's harmful to entire populations because you have for that black bear example you have what you might call a meta population or a group of individuals that cover both the Sky Islands in Southern Arizona and the mountains in Sonora, Mexico um, and Chihuahua, Mexico. And to collectively, they represent a pretty stable group population, whole population of black bears. But when you cut that in half with a, a physical barrier that's impermeable to black bears, suddenly you have two much smaller populations and each is more vulnerable to extinction to loss of habitat, to disease, to a seasonal 
scarcity of, a, of food. You know, some one area might suddenly just not have much food. And because the population is effectively cut in half, it's just that much less resilient to those kinds of events. And so populations might blip out over time. And at the grand time scale, much beyond, you know, you and me as individuals here, the impacts of this wall, if it, they're not removed, will affect the genetics. The, the entire genetic makeup of some species may change because we're restricting the reproduction and the movement of new animals through the landscape. So there will um, inevitably a genetic cascade with unknown consequences um, of this wall, but at, that's at a much longer time scale. Yeah, I guess thinking about genetics and stuff too, because so if you go to the Grand Canyon, for example, there's a, a type of squirrel, I'm spacing the name right now, it's on the north rim, there's another type on the south rim, and like they're related genetically, but they're different because they're separated from a right from the canyon squirrels. or by so the canyon. Yeah, the ground squirrel. So like, what would be the issue then of, say you split a bear population in half, like it, it decreases the genetic diversity there. So does that cause issues with um, like genetic diseases and like, just a lack of diversity. Yeah, that's really one of the possible sort of unintended consequences of this as a population gets cut off and has less genetic diversity. Uh, and that is something that we see um, sort of great examples of in agriculture, right? We, many of us have, are aware that the, you know, the banana on which all of our banana flavors are based, the Cavendish, I believe it's called, is gone because it was a monocrop. It was a single, had no genetic diversity. It was one clone and there was a disease that it was particularly vulnerable to. So that entire race or that entire breed of bananas is gone uh, and has been replaced by a new breed of bananas. It doesn't taste like banana candy. And that's because that is based on a previous version of, of a banana. I think a lot of people will just be like, oh, well, like animals evolve and they change and whatever. And so that's okay. But it's like, it's almost like shortcutting, in, in my opinion, or I'm not a biologist by any means, but it's like shortcutting the evolution process. So instead of having something that would take millions and millions of years, it's like, well, it happens instantly. And then that really affects the animals, right? Yeah. Um, that's Yeah, it's a really great point. Humans are just great at creating change at a much quicker rate than ecological systems do um, for the most part, right? Other than some really dramatic events, humans can act much quicker than biology at, at large scales. Um, and so, like you said, we're sort of forcing this change upon species and populations, but the, one of the dangers of splitting populations and restricting movements is suddenly you've got an isolated population that can't breed with outside individuals. And there's just, it's almost like having, it's like you have suddenly you have fewer tools to adapt to unknown changes. You had this really great tool set. You had your, you know, the big red ones, it's got a thousand drawers and you never like any challenge that comes up, you probably have the tool for it. But imagine you just take three quarters of that tool box and you throw it away and you only have Allen wrenches left you're gonna be kind of in a pickle if something comes up and you need sh cutting shears or you need a plier, right? Um, this is kind of a, a, a stretch of an analogy, but when you cut populations in half and you reduce genetic diversity, you're kind of reducing their tool chest when it comes to in their and reducing their ability to react to changes of 
climate, of changes to environment, of changes to prey resources, of changes to whatever it may be. And the, the species could be fine. It could adapt and it, it, maybe they have the resources, genetically speaking, to, to adapt to whatever new conditions there are. But it could be that you have removed that critical tool from their chest that would have allowed them to adapt to a brand new water regime because of dramatic changes in the rainfall amounts kind of thing. So we don't know what the long-term impacts of this are, but generally if you reduce the genetic diversity of a population, it makes the population less resilient, uh, less adaptable. So what would be a, a good compromise here then? Because it seems like people are always going to be pushing for border security, but then also it's like, well, we don't want to destroy the environment too much because there's like obvious reasons there. So like, yeah. Yeah. So Der Derek, that's a really good question. And I think leaning on technology. And in fact, this is something uh, DHS and, and CBP have already have already done. What some folks don't realize is for much of the U.S. border with Mexico, uh, there is a virtual fence, they call it, um, where they have either blimps in the air, tethered blimps with like kind of low sort of radar systems that are scanning and looking. And then they have towers that have infrared cameras. They have motion sensing cameras. They have, and these are all relayed directly to sort of bases or operation centers where folks can then be dispatched to deal with movement or people on the landscape so they have this virtual fence and it's hard to move down there undetected it's happened to us numerous times checking cameras where suddenly there's a drone overhead following us around um and it's a it's a border patrol drone and we just got picked up on a sensor and they sent a drone to check us out or we've had border patrol approach us and say hey we caught you on our cameras uh what were you doing uh you were over here 20 minutes ago and so they have eyes across the landscape already. And I think leaning into that technology is, is the solution, right? It's, it's, it's cheaper, it's less costly than building a physical barrier that's not gonna stop people anyway. And so the technology allows for a more sort of agile response. You can kind of allocate personnel to places where there's more movement at different times. You can um, also, probably sense better there's this sort of irony is that we've been told anecdotally that the sensors are actually negatively impacted by these sorts of border barriers because metal interfe interferes with their um with radar systems and it also blocks sort of their night vision and so in a way the border barriers make it harder for border patrol to sense and do their job virtually um so I'd say the solution is leaning on technology, leveraging what we have already and, and expanding that grid if we really want to protect the borders in that sense. And then, of course, having that harder and more meaningful conversation about immigration reform. The border barriers, just another example of that, like not actually solving the problem. Um, you're just distracting people and spending millions of dollars, billions of dollars to do something that doesn't solve the problem. Um, so in, in conclusion, leaning on technology, we have incredible technology to sense and detect and protect and reforming our immigration policies. And that's really interesting then too, that like a wall is less effective 
than the current technology that's out there as far as cameras and infrared sensors and things. But it seems like it's almost as like a like a show of hey, we're doing something and people are more likely to maybe like respect isn't the right word, but maybe notice or acknowledge something when they can physically see it versus just something they can't see, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a huge component of it, right? Is a, a wall is a big physical thing you can stand by and take photos of and measure tangible progress and construction, whereas these sensors are scattered across every few miles. They have a big tall tower up that's got a collection of sensors on the top that are monitoring 24-7 much of the most of the borderlands uh, and that's just harder to measure and that system's not new it's been in place for more than a decade it's expanded it's it's kind of continually growing but it's not a new system and it's been there for a long time um, and was understood to be sufficient for a long time but then the the debate the issue became much more politicized and the the wall became much more of a like you said it's easier to measure the the physical progress of a wall than a couple new sensor towers Um, and so yeah it's unfortunate that this is where we are Uh, the walls are reality and specifically the shipping container issue is just sort of a new frustrating step in the wrong direction because it's and it's it's illegal. It's an illegal action by the state. It's it's destroying public lands, uh, the national forest. It's it's land of us all. We're all supposed to freely use that. And now there's giant dust clouds and thousands of shipping containers in this area that was really beautiful and pristine before this. Um, and the roads are going to be impassable come the first rain because they blocked all the washes, and they're just going to pool now with water. Uh, and so. There's going to be a whole cascade of effects here um, and for no great reason. Um, and so, yes, it's a frustrating uh, frustrating topic, but there is hope. We hope that this wall construction gets stopped. We hope the shipping containers get removed. And we hope that work that we do and other groups do um, just help remind people of like the beauty and the diversity of this area and the, the importance of maintaining connectivity for wildlife, but also for culture, right? We're two cultures in the US and Mexico and we're blended, we're one. We shouldn't really be throwing this barrier up because it just enforces the us and them when in fact we have a lot in common and there should be more. We should be sharing and collectively enjoying our lands um, and not staring down the face of a 30 foot steel bollard with razor wire from floor to ceiling. Yeah, so what would be like the so i don't know apart from politics like we already talked about like the i guess the negatives or the positives of ever having a wall there so it would be and you discussed the positives of having um, like sensors and cameras and like agents out there but what would be the negative or the downsides of only sensors and only cameras versus having a physical wall in your opinion anyways yeah that's great and, and derek i have another meeting starting i'm a little late for it but so i can answer this one and then i might have to sign off and we could maybe follow up if you have more questions um okay. but i think the negative it depends on your perspective but perhaps there would be some more people coming through these remote lands um and but that would perhaps that would really be the only negative if you if you leverage that money that was not spent on a wall into just increasing the virtual the virtual wall or the network of sensors um 
you would have to be a little bit more mobile. You wouldn't be able to like write places as mostly quiet because the wall does slow things down. Um, but for the most part, the ability to detect and detain is still the same because you can't detain until they're in the US and you have to detect them once they're in the US. And so if you have sensor, a network of sensors, you still need that network of sensors, even if you have a wall, you just wait for people to get over the wall, then you pick them up, then you detect them, and then you then you can recover them or whatever you need to do. And so the, 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 the negatives of not having the wall or perhaps there might be a little bit more dispersed movement, um, but it's, I don't think the negatives are very strong. I don't think there would be a dramatic increase in activity um, if if we removed the wall and just relied on technology. I think folk, like that information would spread that, hey, the technological grid is pretty intense and hard to get through without being detected. So that would still deter movement and slow movement and offer folks the chance to secure the border from that perspective. Um, but that's a hard political talking point, right? It's it's, much, it's a much simpler issue to just say wall versus no wall, open borders, floods of people versus a wall and secured borders, which both sides are fake and both sides aren't true. So, or aren't telling the whole story. Yeah. And that's the frustrating thing is like, it's just, everything is so politicized and people will kind of push like so-called facts. I mean, if it is like a total truth, they'll just push it and push it and push it and not look at other sides because they're. I think there's usually always a middle ground in everything. And this is definitely an issue where you need to be like, I don't know, practical about it and look at both sides or multiple angles on this because it's like just building a wall is not going to fix anything and it screws people over and screws the animals over. And then there's other issues politically and, and socially and everything. But um, yeah, thanks for taking the the time. It was really interesting to learn about it. And I'm I'm curious to see what happens with with the wall and the, especially the shipping container wall being built on federal lands by the state and then how that even reacts to the environment because anyone that lives down here knows how powerful the monsoons are and it could just be a total disaster so that'll be interesting in the spring and summer yeah yeah it'll be there'll be a lot of shipping containers in mexico um after a couple of monsoon rains um but yeah, super yeah. interesting to talk to you, Derek. Like I said, if there's if you feel there's like a hole in the story that you want to follow up with, let me know. Um, and then, yeah, if you kind of off the record want to spread to your community that um, going down and recreating in the national forest is an effective way to slow this down. Um, just ride your bike, bird, play some Frisbee. Um, small groups of people are an effective tool. Um, and we're not, as an organization, I can't say that Skyland is promoting or, or like organizing any of that. So don't, please don't say that we are, but sort of as an individual, personal user myself of the National Forest, just a, a, something we've noticed is that small groups of people going down and recreating riding bikes um, have slowed construction or stopped construction for entire days, just to give the federal government more time to respond. We want a legal approach taken, but um, to like be more definitive and we're not doing anything illegal we're not damaging anything but just simply being down there and recreating and using our public lands as we are allowed to do is a pretty powerful and effective way to voice your opinion on this okay, well i'll let you go Ammon. i appreciate the time yeah. and it was fun to chat yeah likewise all right well thanks have a good evening you too bye